Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. So, so excited you guys are here tonight for such an important conversation. Uh, as we get started tonight, we're going to uh, walk you through some steps. I want to show you a short video just as kind of a, a way of intro. Um, and uh, at any point tonight, you can text questions to the number on the screen. And uh, if they are talking on a certain subject and you've got a question about that subject, you can text questions. Uh, they will be filtered, so just because you text the question doesn't mean it'll actually get to me. Uh, so ask really good questions. And then we will do a question and answer time at the end uh, or, or towards the end. I think we will uh, end at the very end with a time of repentance and prayer for those of you who want to be a part of that. And, uh, and that'll be a, a part of it as well. But I think we're going to have a, a quite interesting and fun conversation tonight. There is so much that they did not get to share this morning because of time restraints, especially if you were down at South Shore. Uh, they really had to speed through South Shore. And uh, so even some of the things they got to share here because of time restraints, they didn't get to share down there. And uh, so, so much, so much interesting things to share. But as a way to get started tonight, let's pray. And then I want to show you a video. Father, we preach about this all the time in our church and we talk about it. But the way that we love you is demonstrated in how we love each other. That is how we are to be known. Not because of our worship, not because of our churches, not because of our bumper stickers or because of our friendly personalities. We are to be known because of our love for each other. That we would love each other the way you've loved us. And God, as a church, as a capital C church, we fail at that. We have not become known by people who love. We've become known by all kinds of other things, but not love. So God, tonight, and, and, and one of them prophesied it this morning, they said we could be the tip of the spear. We may not solve all the world's problems, but we can solve my world's problems. We can, be in, we can be a light in my dark place. And I pray that would be the heart of what we're talking about tonight. And Lord, there are some things that, that we can work on the outside of a man, but there's other things that can only be changed from the inside. And the heart of a human being can only be changed by you. And Lord, that's what we're looking for tonight, is change from the heart, from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we get started tonight, uh, all three of us have a mutual friend by the name of Sean Smith. He's an evangelist in California with a powerful testimony uh, of racial healing in his own life that's led into testimonies outside of that as well. But it's about a five-minute long little short testimony video of Sean Smith. Would you turn your attention to the screens and let's watch this video. I was outside on the playground and then the teacher came out on the playground and interrupted it and they said, uh, Sean, there's been an emergency. You, you need to go home. You know, you're nine years of age. Uh, that doesn't happen too often. My grandmother could barely bring herself to words. She just said, baby, I'm sorry to tell you, last night your dad was murdered. And in that moment, it was like my whole world crashed, it collapsed. You know, uh, it, it was a tough day. 
I'm starting to hear he was shot by a policeman and he had committed no crime. Basically, the information began to trickle down that it was racially motivated and he was profiled. I began to get in a lot of fights at school and that was just not me. I, even though I grew up in a rough neighborhood, I, I was like Switzerland in World War II. I was like trying to be the peacemaker. I just felt like I was falling deeper and deeper in this abyss and I could feel it and it, it was kind of frightening. My grandmother had uh, contracted initially cancer of the liver and I started to see a decline in her health and it really hurt me. It really hurt me and, and there's this fear of uh, if there's anyone in my life that gets me, it's my grandmother. And I think I remember even in my own way praying and saying, God, please don't take my grandma. So I, I get the call and she said, hey, grandma, grandma died. I was beyond hurt. I was beyond broke. At this point, suicide was not a thought. I, I'm getting strategy. I'm, I'm, I'm checking out. I'm going to do this thing. I had the, this conversation with my grandma before she passed, and she said, grandbaby, one day you're gonna find out you can't do this thing called life all on your own. Promise me one thing. Promise me you will call on the name of Jesus. I said, God, if you're real, I wanna experience you. So I cried out to God, I passed out, and about uh, three o'clock in the morning, I'm awakened, and the presence of God filled my room like I had never felt the presence of God before. I see Jesus and I hear the audible voice of God. He says, I'll be a father to the fatherless. I got up the next day and it was like the world like was different. It was like light came back in my world. Probably within weeks, I go out to this campus ministries uh, meeting and I'm just weeping because I'm feeling the love of God again. I'm feeling the same presence that filled the room. And then I just had this strong impression that I know it was God speak to me and that you needed to forgive the police officers. The love of God so overwhelmed me that it felt easy to do. And I know that sounds crazy. So I said, God, I forgive them. And then I felt like, though I never met them, I prayed for them and their families. And I prayed that those guys would know Jesus, you know, that they'd have an opportunity and, and I just felt from that point on, uh, you know, I felt like a weight lifted and I, and I, I want to be a father to people like that. You know, it's one of my great joys. I feel like it's my way of giving the, the devil the blow, the strike that I'm able to get back at him and just think, you thought you could make me, you know, handicapped in this area and yet God can breathe on and bring grace. And when people hear my story, it is a story now of a police officer shooting my dad and killing my dad that we've seen this scenario and so i feel like one of the things is, is to be agents of healing and restoration of community and going out and showing hey there's another way there's another solution you know people struggle today as if if god is good why do bad things happen and i think the flip of it is is that the world bad things happen but there is something that will always be good in a world that can sometimes appear more bad than normal or, or than usual and that's that there's a good God in the midst of a bad world isn't that good isn't that good
I love Sean and a testimony that we're not able to get, and I would love to bring him here, but he's in, in Los Angeles area of California. It's a, it's a little, little trip to get to here for us just for this. Uh, Sean has two people in his ministry that serve alongside of him that are kind of right-hand people to Sean. One of them is a former KKK member that when they met was a KKK member that the first thing that he said to Sean is, I hate black people. Sean said, you better be glad I was a Christian at that point. God revolutionizes and changes the man's heart, and he becomes a right-hand person, an armor bearer to Sean, who's lifting up his arms in hard time. Another one was a, a Malcolm X-style, Black Panther-style uh, on the other end, and, and the same thing happened. And now you got these former KKK members, and, and, and the difference is working together. And I say all that to say there's only two ways to change a person. One is from the outside. You can make laws. You can make disciplines. You can scare them into, you can fear them into following rules. Or you can change from the inside, from the outside and the inside. The inside actually makes it so that the laws are not even all that necessary because you don't want to do those things. What we do as believers is change people, or I should say what God does, but what God uses us to help with is to change people from the inside out, not the outside in. So we live in America that is constantly talking about change from the outside in, where God wants to change from the inside out. And what I want us to see tonight is the revelation in our eyes that what we are battling with racism in America is very much a spiritual battle. And we as believers have to fight that battle differently than anybody else is gonna fight it. So I'm not opposed to some of the things that goes on in laws and things like that. I'm not opposed to those things necessarily. But us as believers know who the real enemy is. And we have to be unified in that quest to defeat the enemy. Now, uh, the guys beside me, for the most part, probably need no introduction. You guys got to meet them. Uh, this morning. I will introduce them as uh, Matt Lockett, who has the greatest beard on the stage at least. And Will Ford, who has the coolest jacket that's in this room right now. I told him, man, I, I picked him up and he walked out of the room today and he's wearing that jacket. I'm like, oh my goodness, bro, you look like Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> like a shaft <laughs> and uh, so glad these guys are with us hey I know you want to get into eugenics right off the bat or here early on at least uh, before we get there can we do like a five-minute recap of this morning for anybody who wasn't here can, can you guys whoever wants to take that <laughs> take a long story and did you say 40. five minutes yeah just catch everybody yeah. up with where we're at yeah, so since 2001 I've been carrying this particular family heirloom this cast iron kettle pot just to the left of me. I've been carrying that around the country uh, because it's been passed down to my family from generation to generation, about seven generations. It was used by the slaves of my family for cooking, washing clothes. Secretly, it was used for prayer. I want to talk a little bit more about that later on. But uh, so we're taking it around the country, talking about prayer, unity, and revival, and uh, talking about how it was just this, like this, this remnant of black Christian slaves and also white Christian abolitionists that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening had a bit for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. So around 2003, 2004, I had this dream about Martin Luther King, the dreamer, where God really dealt with my heart uh, about uh, my own race issues that I need to deal with, and also the, the nation, what he wanted us to do in terms of healing the racial divide. Well, I had that dream that led me to a prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial, where there was this white guy who had a dream. <laughs> It was mad. He had to dream about the guy over the event that we were having. And the weird thing for me when I hear his story is that 
He had never met at Lou Engel before. The way he met him was in a dream. And so he goes to this newly invented thing called Google, types in the name Lou Engel that he heard in the dream, and up pops the face of the man that he saw in the dream. And he's doing what he saw in the dream. So he thought, maybe I need to go to this event. So he and I became good friends. We went to that same event. And then uh, been friends for like 15 years. Well, fast forward about four or five years ago, Matt found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. <laughs> so, th so we thought, what a cool coincidence. I have this kettle kind of pot where people pray underneath for freedom. Your front yard from your family's house became the answer to my forefathers' prayers. We thought, what a cool coincidence. But then we stumbled on more research, and then we learned that it was his family that owned my family where the kettle kind of pot came from. And we met at the Lincoln Memorial, both led by dreams, to the place where Dr. King said, now I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. What a coincidence. <laughs> right. <laughs> Divine coincidence. Right. All right, so, um, uh, if, if you missed this morning, go back and watch it. It'll be on YouTube. JC, when it'll be on YouTube? Tomorrow it'll be on YouTube. It's on Facebook right now under our group. It's on, it should be on our website, I believe, right now. Uh, he's shaking his head yes. Go back and watch it. Make sure you watch it. I'll be honest, even if you watch some of the other services, especially South Shore, um, 11 o'clock they got to share a lot longer than they did in the others and, and there's just so much more depth in what they got to say in the 11 o'clock. So even if you saw it, go back and watch it again because it's worth uh, watching again. You'll see the 11 o'clock is what's going to be on the, on the videos. Um, all right, guys. Uh, so, so take us deeper into what you talked about this morning. Let, yes. me, let me do this. I want to set you up, Will, to, to kind of kick us off. When I first saw me a lot. When I, when I first heard the story of the kettle and about the slaves who used this to pray in secret, I'd never heard of that type of activity before. That was new to me. Uh, but if you want to put up the first image, Tony, if you would, please just kind of want us to get an image in our minds. There, there's actually a rich historical legacy that Will has tapped in here. And I want him to kind of explain what he found in his research. Yeah, so I combed through about 3,500 slave narratives because I wanted to learn more. And I wanted to know if there were you know, other stories about slaves praying underneath kettle pots. Kind of, sounds kind of weird, right? You hear it. I mean, can't you just pray quietly, silently, right? But there was something about them. They felt like they had to pray out loud, and they felt like if they prayed too loud, they needed to have it muffled. So I combed through about 3,500 slave narratives, and I found about 400 times where slaves had to have secret prayer meetings for some of the same reasons that our family had to have secret prayer meetings. The slave masters literally beat them if they heard them praying because they did, them, did not want them to get any kind of hope for freedom. Now, the other thing, let's be honest, the other thing they were concerned about, the slave masters were concerned about insurrections, right? So they were concerned about people uh, gathering together, saying they were having church services or prayer meetings, but then turning it into, okay, this is how we're going to take master down tonight, right? <laughs> and that ha actually happened. You had, uh, of course, uh, Morris Brown who did that and, and a couple of others. So they actually passed laws around black people congregating, and, uh, and they couldn't congregate without having a white overseer or, or too many blacks in one spot, they couldn't do that. So, because uh, they were concerned about insurrections. <clears throat> but the other reason why they did not want them to pray because they did not want them to get any kind of hope for freedom. So, uh, of those 400 accounts that I found, about 200 of them, they used 
secret prayer meetings, and what they would do, what they would do is they would use wash pots, barrels, and kettles to muffle their voices as they prayed. So this story wasn't just relegated to my family. This story was something that was proliferated throughout the South. I talked to uh, David Barton about this. He said, yeah, you know, he found the same thing. And so uh, our summation is that, another historian's summation is that as they were sold across the country, that secret prayer meeting was carried on to the next place that they went to. And uh, they would take the, ke- take the kettle pots and turn them upside down, then prop it up with rocks on the edges so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. Same thing in my family. Lay flat on the ground, put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pot would muffle their voices as they prayed through the night. The other variation was that they would actually dig a hole in the ground and, and put their head in the hole and put the pot over them as they prayed, right? Reminds me of Hebrews 11.36 where it says, uh, these were people of whom the world was not worthy, who dwelt in mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And then the cooking pots I had, praying for you, praying for me. And another way they kept their prayer meeting secret was they used blankets. So I, we would take this blanket around with us. There's a, a family that actually let us, let's just take that blanket with us around the country. It, that, that blanket was actually made by a former slave, former Christian slave. And I like to take it around because that's the other way they kept their prayers secret. They would create what they called hush harbors. And so, of course, we have streetlights today. They didn't have streetlights then. So the slaves would sing a song. In all these narratives, I heard this. They would sing a song in the middle of the day called, Still Away, Still Away, Still Away to Jesus. Some of the old folks, y'all remember hearing that song, right? Well, that, that song was actually a secret code song in slavery to let the slaves know that there was going to be a secret prayer meeting that night. All right? And so they, they said they never told each other what time the prayer meeting was going to be because they didn't want somebody to, you know, let the news get back to the big house, all right? So the Holy Spirit will wake them up at the time period that the, that, the, that the prayer meeting was going to be. So the first person would bend the branches of trees in the direction of the prayer meeting. And so they would walk in the middle of the night, feel which way their branch was bent, and then find the prayer meeting. And then it would take these blankets and they would wet them and they would build a little tent. They felt like the wet blankets actually deadened the sound as they prayed. So these are the ways they carried out these prayers, carried out these prayer meetings. And uh, this, this, these slave errors were, I read them in Arkansas, North Carolina, Texas, Louisiana, and, um, and also, I think also in Virginia as well. So a key scripture that has been I think a, a window for us into the race issue, the racial divide issue is Acts 17, verse 26. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, this is powerful, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us for in him we live and move and have our being. This picture of the, the slaves bending the rushes and branches over in the darkness of night so that they can find their yeah. way through the woods to the prayer meeting, this is a powerful picture of this scripture because where it says that they would, should seek after God, the literal translation there is that they would grope for him and find him. So even in the darkest of situations, in, in, in sort of the pinnacle of oppression, Jesus could be found even in that. And I love that image that, that, that even, you know, in your allotted time frame and in your allotted boundaries where God has put you, 
Listen, you're, you're in your neighborhood for a reason. You were born where you were born. You were born at the time you were born for a reason. And regardless of your circumstances, you hear me? Regardless of how hard or how blessed your life may be, Jesus can be found. You know, and I just love this picture of these slaves that even in that darkest of night, they're bending the branches and they're groping and finding Jesus. And, and risk their lives to pray. There's a, a, there's a slave narrative from a, a former slave named Peter Randolph who tells a story of a family member of his who started a, a prayer meeting in the woods. And uh, for, um, uh, for having that prayer meeting in the woods, they were found. And uh, for having that prayer meeting, three of the people who went with him were shot and killed. And the... The, the slave uh, forefather, a friend of his, family member, he was actually, uh, it's hard for me to talk about because what they did to him was horrendous. They wanted to make an example out of him, so they decided to take him since he led that prayer meeting. They took him and they, they beat him, they flogged him like I described earlier, and his back was tore out, and then they said they pickled him. Now, pickling is when they would take turpentine or some brine and throw it on the wounds of your back. They said that they did that three times. So in other words, they would beat him, pickle him, and as he would heal up, just before he healed, they would flog him and pickle him again. They did that to him three times. They sold off his wife and his four children to separate plantations. And uh, finally, uh, they sold him off, and as he was uh, on his way to the next plantation, they say he died on the way of a broken heart, all because he risked his life to go and pray. So that's how cruel uh, slavery could, could be in that time period. Wow, that's so intense. <clears throat> For you guys in the audience, if, if you ever get a chance to go to D.C. now, I don't, I don't know how many years ago, not long ago, the Bible Museum was created. How, how many years ago was that, Matt? Uh, I think that was 20... Uh, 17 that it, that now, it now if you're like if I'm just gonna throw myself under the bus for a second as a Christian pastor I thought Bible Museum Wow cheesy you know what I mean um, and I and so I went because I'm not I'm supposed to go because it might be interesting it's a museum of the Bible really what is it I got to tell you this, the place is amazing it is absolutely amazing if you go there it is better than the Smithsonian's uh, and and uh, my kids just loved it. It is incredible. Go to the Bible Museum if you get, if you get a chance to go there. Uh, but part of that, they do the traveling exhibits that come and go. And one of the traveling exhibits when we were there was the exhibit of the Slave Bible. Matt and I talked about that a little bit last night. Um, the exhibit of the Slave Bible, which I had heard of but didn't really have any details about. And it was interesting to me how uh, slave masters didn't want the slaves to have any hope. So they would give them a version of the Bible that took out any verses about uh, things like the Exodus things like coming out of bondage, and they were all about being good slaves, not ever getting out of bondage. And, uh, and, and I mentioned that both because that's kind of what you're talking about there. We don't want to give hope. Uh, at the same time, I think if we're not careful, we do the same thing in the United States today. Totally. We, we retranslate the Bible to say what we want it to say in our particular instance, which is the same kind of sin. It's the same problem. Exactly. But then you, ha you also had the abolitionists at that time period who don't get enough credit. These white Christian abolitionists yeah who knew that any Christian who was a slave was, a, was their brother. And these folks, they read the whole counsel of God, and they knew there was for freedom that Christ set us all free. And they fought in prayer, and they fought through action. They fought for reform, and they fought for change. And uh, they, they fought to see everybody get set free. Yeah, yeah. Amen. 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 All right. 
Well, what we would like to do, maybe, and, and I'm really hoping for some engaging Q&A tonight, and so I hope you're going to text questions, but we thought we'd kind of stir the pot a little bit with a, a really Pun intended. thick topic. What'd you say? Pun intended. Yes. <laughs> um, we want to talk about something called eugenics. Now, can I just see a raise of hands if you've heard or know, do you know what eugenics are? Okay, look. Hardly anybody in this room knows, so this is going to be a good topic to talk about. So um, I'll set this up just a little bit. If you could go to the second image, we want to introduce you to this young man right here. Will's going to kind of explain who he is and what happened. So this is uh, Oda Benga. Oda Benga, this is around 1904, between 1904 to 1906. Oda Benga was what we would call like an animal whisperer, right? He was this amazing animal trainer in Africa. And there was a person in uh, Africa who saw him, who was working as a missionary, but this person was part of the eugenics society. So I'll use the word eugenics. What, all you need to know is this. Eugenics is just a sophisticated name for racism. Right? The eugenics folks believe that uh, food supplies grow arithmetically, populations grow geometrically, so at some point in time there's not going to be enough food left for the people who they feel deserve to be here. So anybody they want to proliferate are people with the quote-unquote uh, good genes, eugenic, like you, like eulogy, being good, good genes. Anybody who uh, is going to pull on the resources of the society that they feel they need to have, they need to have more. Those people are dysgenic. In other words, they are they bad genes. We need to have less of those people. So it's this huge class distinction, but they actually believe that um, not just race, but also poverty could be passed down generationally. They believe there was an inherent thing in people, and they believe that even poverty was a gene that could be passed down. So even poor people for them were dysgenic folks that we need to have less of. So it was this racist mindset. It was proliferated by um, Hitler and other people. So anyway, this, this eugenicist who's there doing missionary work, he sees Odebinga and he thinks, oh, this guy is a great example of how African Americans are closer to apes and monkeys on the evolutionary scale. So he decides to take Odebinga, he convinces Odebinga to come back with him to the World's Fair in Louisiana, and he tells him, say, hey, you know, I want you to come and be a part of this display I'm doing, and uh, you can do your animal training things and put it on display. But really, Odebinga was being put on display, and they put him in cages with apes and monkeys. And they tried to say that because he had these tribal filings of his teeth, they tried to say that he was, that he tried to use him as a display to say that African Americans were closer to apes and monkeys on the evolutionary scale. So people got upset about this, and other pastors and leaders, rightfully so, began to get up in arms about it and say, this is not right. This is just social Darwinism, what you're doing. You're trying to say this is, a, you know, some evolutionary thing or whatever that's trying to demean uh, African-Americans, and they say, you know what, you're right, this is scientific. So they talked to somebody at uh, the Bronx Zoo. That person they talked to was Madison Grant. Madison Grant was over the Bronx Zoo at that time period. He buys Odabinga. Now, this is 1905, 1906. Slavery has long been over. He buys Odabinga and puts him in the Bronx Zoo in New York and, and has orangutans and monkeys as his... Uh, Cellmates there in the Bronx Zoo. Over 40,000 people some weekends would come to see Odabenga. 
being put on display like this. And uh, Madison Grant is key in this whole discussion because Madison Grant, who was over the Bronx Zoo at that time period, he actually wrote a book during that time period called The Passing of the Great Race. It was the first book on scientific racism in this nation, which tried to say that the white race was the most powerful race. And uh, it was a book that was well read by, uh, by Hitler. Also, it was well read by another eugenist named Margaret Sanger. Now, who was Margaret Sanger? Well, Margaret Sanger just happens to be the lady who actually founded Planned Parenthood. And uh, when she started that organization, and she started it for the sole purpose of uh, controlling the population of people that she as a eugenist felt like we needed to have less of. And some of the means that she wanted to use to, to control that population was through sterilization, through uh, birth control, through abortion, and if you couldn't prevent those people from being born, then you need to use mass incarceration and other means to control them. So that was literally their, their plan. So uh, eventually, Odabenga uh, gets released, but he was so, um, so depressed for how he was treated. He actually committed suicide, shot himself in the heart from the dehumanization that happened. Now, a lot of people were upset when they saw the whole thing with a few, it was a few years back when um, H&M had this thing up where they had this uh, magazine ad where they had a, a young, yeah, T-shirts with the 11-year-old kid, or black kid, they had a shirt on that said, uh, coolest monkey in the jungle. And then right next to him was a white kid that had a shirt on that said, uh, jungle survival ex expert, right? So LeBron was upset, Jay-Z was upset. And the reason why is because when you dehumanize anybody, it makes it easier to eliminate them, right? Or, and, and marginalize them. So people were rightfully upset about that, but that outrage started in the black community back then, back 1904, 1905, 1906. That's when we started fighting against these images because of what's, what the eugenics society started. So I just want people to understand the whole thing with eugenics. Eugenics is like the like pink elephant in the room when it comes to dealing with a race issue that nobody wants to touch because their, their focus was immigration, their focus was on uh, mass incarceration, their focus was on even um, pooling the people together they wanted to have less of, even letting let the diseases run amok amongst them. And so it was this huge class war and race war, and that's where really a lot of this stuff just started. Yeah, uh, jump right back in, Matt. Uh, people don't, we, we don't always realize this, the origin of so much of that starts with Darwinian evolution. Yes. And it's not just evolution, because you can debate that and talk about that, but Darwinian evolution specifically has racism built into it. And I just pulled this up just to make sure I quoted it exactly correctly. But we've all heard of Origin of the Species, right? Everybody's heard of that book. You're taught to read that in school. Do you know what the original title, in the full title, I should say it this way, the full title of Origin of Species is? In 1859, November 24th, the Origin of Species book, the full title is Origin of Species by, man, by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Yeah. That's what we should teach our kids, right? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, this, this, this is a, an ideology that took shape. You have to understand, 1865, slavery ends. The nation, particularly the South, goes into the Reconstruction years, which was a, a really a time of turmoil. And a lot of, uh, I'm just gonna be very blunt and honest tonight in this environment, a lot of white people were saying, what are we gonna do with all these black people? Okay, this is real. And so by the turn of the century, you have the emergence of an ideology that then begins to legitimize and devise a new way 
to control and eliminate the undesirables. And so this is what eugenics, it sounded so respectable. In fact, at that time, you could go to every university campus in America and there was a eugenics society where this was, this was an ideology that was completely legitimized, validated and being taught and discipling, you know, they were discipling the young generation in this thought process. And so it's out of that, that uh, period of time that you have Margaret Sanger emerge and of course, she wanted to take a, a sexual liberation ideology and marry it with this insidious ideology. And so she gives birth to, ironically speaking, I guess, she uh, gives birth to Planned Parenthood. And that goes on to, uh, and you need to understand this, because this morning, you know, when we told our story, it might have been maybe a little confusing when you hear us tell our dreams and it's like, well, wait a minute, are we talking about racism or are we talking about abortion? Because it sounds like you guys are talking about both. And in, you know, in fact, it, it can be confusing because it's like, what do these two things have to do with each other? And we've been accused a lot in the past of conflating the two, that you're using the pain of a community to legitimize this other thing. And that's not what we're doing. You have to understand, like, so, so with, with eugenics, this thing, it, it, it produces an ideology and a value system that devalues human life. It delegitimizes certain human beings in favor of other human beings, okay? And as soon as you do that, then you can do whatever you want with the ones that you don't desire. And so what she did was she developed things called the Negro Project. And she began to partner with, unfortunately, with the church in America. In fact, she would, she would go in and say, oh, pastor, you want to do a tent revival? This is a great idea. I will fund your tent revival and get the pastor all excited, but then say, but everyone that comes has to go through our tent first. And she would set up her tent that had information about sterilization and about birth control and so there was this plan that took shape to eliminate and to reduce the number of African-Americans. So the all station. the black people who had come to the revival had to go through Margaret Sanger's tent before they could go into the revival tent. So there is this, there's, there's a root of a partnership that as Christians, we need to see and, and recognize that there's a root of a partnership between the church and abortion. And we don't like to acknowledge this, but it's real. So now let me fast forward. You think, well, that's 100 years ago. That's not around today. False. Okay, so what I do for a living is I pray for the United States Supreme Court. Last year, well, in 2016, the state of Indiana, where I was born and raised, uh, they signed into law. You Hoosier? Come on. We're the only two. <laughs> Three, four, five, come on, this is awesome. <laughs> so Indiana passes uh, a pro-life law that part of it said that you cannot abort based on fetal abnormality. And so let me break this down to make it real easy. Let's say that you get pregnant and you find out that the baby has Down syndrome, okay? Uh, Indiana says you can't have an abortion just because you don't want a baby with disabilities. Well, that law got challenged and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It, it was uh, up to be heard by the Supreme Court in the last session. So this is just this year. And in, in June, they declined to hear it because it's the only case of its kind 
they're waiting for another case to emerge. But Clarence Thomas, who is the only African-American on the Supreme Court, he wrote 20 pages. I love this man. He wrote 20 pages uh, in a concurring opinion about this. And here's what he did. He, he exposed the roots of Planned Parenthood. 20 pages about Indiana's law because there were all of these friend of the court briefs saying that, that uh, this, is, this is to prevent a modern incarnation of eugenics, which is to say that some people don't deserve to live because they are less desirable. Do you understand Iceland, the nation of Iceland, is bragging that they have completely eliminated Down syndrome. Do you know how? They abort 100% of them. So Clarence Thomas writes 20 pages exposing the eugenics root of Planned Parenthood and its founder, Margaret Sanger. And he says, while Sanger was not specifically advocating for abortion, it is clear that abortion is the, the, uh, the perfect expression of eugenics ideology. Yeah, yeah. do you want to talk about that? Madison Grant. Oh, yeah, we, we are mentioning him already. But, yeah, Madison Grant's book was bedside of Hitler when he, when he, when he died. And, and Margaret Sanger, again, read this guy's book. Uh, yeah. So, so that gives us a really vivid picture of what, what this ideology leads to. It's just that it's really masquerading right now. But it is right in front of us. And I appreciate what Justice Thomas wrote because it exposes it uh, in our day and age. Yeah, I think there's really a question here about who is your God. So, so we have dollar bills, $20 bills, whatever, in the United States that say in God we trust, which is ironic because I think we actually trust in the dollar, not God, and the, on the dollar it's written in God we trust, which is ironic uh, so much in America. And the funny thing is eugenics, while it's very much evil, if you want to have a great economy, it works. So, for instance, uh, during the Holocaust, when it started, they said, let's get rid of anybody who's crippled, anybody who's a drain on society, things like that. And, and they did. That's where it started. Before it ever got to the Jewish people, it got to people who had mental is issues or physical issues, and they could not work, things like that. And so they would exterminate those people first. And that was a great thing for the economy. Let that sink in. It worked. If your God is your money, that's what you follow. If your God is God... It doesn't matter if it's a good financial step. It's a matter of what's right and wrong. And so it's, a, it's, it's an interesting thing. So if your God is money, which America is quickly turning to the money, the almighty dollar, right? Uh, and, and it's ironic that, that it says in God we trust on the dollar at the same time that we really trust in the dollar. Yeah. 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 Just to follow up on this Oda Benga story, can you go to the third image? I would like everyone to see this. Now, uh, this church will know and recognize uh, the man on the right. That is William Seymour. He is the man that, right? The, this is the one-eyed black man that was at the epicenter of the Azusa Street Revival. What year? 1906. Do you realize that this was not happening to Oda Binga during the time of slavery? That was 1906 that Oda was in the Bronx Zoo. So just picture this. I want you to get this. At the same time... This, this, this division existed in the nation where you have one man on one coast in a cage 
and one man on the other coast leading the nation in probably one of the greatest revivals that the planet has ever experienced. How can this happen? How can these two things, we have to ask ourselves that, that's a big question. How can those two things exist at the same time? And I think this picture is so vivid because of the similarities between the two images. But, but we're in a similar time right now in America where things are happening at the same time. The, the, the lightest light and the darkest dark are happening at the same time where you have Alabama passing the most pro-life law in American history but then just four months earlier, you have the state of New York passing the most pro-abortion law in American history. How can these things be existing at the same time? But it's the reality. This is what we're having to deal with right now. I'll, I'll say another thing about William Seymour. Do you guys know how he used to pray? He's famous for this. Head, head in a box. He would put his head under a box. Have you ever wondered why he would do that? Yeah, so his, it turns out his parents were former slaves in Louisiana. Right. Now, if that's how the secret prayer meetings were going on where people were praying underneath kettle pots and praying under boxes to keep their voices muffled, myself, Vincent Sinan, and others, we believe that maybe it was, see, when you see what prayed in that way because he heard the stories of how the slaves prayed with their heads covered underneath kettle pot. So um, we're thinking maybe that's the reason why he prayed like that at the Azusa Street Revival. Come on. Yeah. yeah, the story goes for you guys who don't know it, that the pulpit in the Azusa Street Mission, which is a make sh the makeshift shirt church they were in, was, was two shoe boxes stacked on top of each other. And he would sit in the pulpit and stick his head in the shoe box as he prayed. And they would pray for hours and hours and hours and miracles would happen and things like that. How about next Sunday you guys come in and I'm just going to stick my head in a box. Yeah. <laughs> come on. <laughs> The shoebox river. 115 right. years later, how does that play out? They all yeah. look at me like I was crazy. Probably might be crazy. Not good for know, the web stream. No. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't do good for the online ministry at all. <laughs> all right, are we done with this part? Are we going to the next part? Yes, we are. Yeah, all right, good. so the next part is about flags, right? Oh, yeah. Is, so, that, is that? Yeah, we can talk about flags. So, Matt, you, know, you also heard the story, if you weren't here this morning, but Matt also, though he had people who owned slaves in his family, he also had... Uh, uh, abolitionist in his family, right? Daniel Lockett, who was a revivalist and an abolitionist, was a circuit writer, right? But this amazing, I mean, the Lockett's were all over the place. Y'all were an amazing family. So <laughs> Matt had this, uh, these, these family members down in uh, the Alabama area who were the, the Southern Bell aristocrats. They moved from the Virginia homestead down yeah, to Alabama. From Virginia, moved to Alabama, and uh, this man was, uh, his name was... Napoleon Lockett. Napoleon Lockett and his wife Mary, they were like the Confederate aristocrats. They were like the Gone with the Wind folks, you know, big antebellum houses, lots and lots of slaves. He had 126 slaves himself that Napoleon Lockett did. And between he and his 11 children, they owned close to maybe a thousand slaves. Well, he was a planner, he was a lawyer, and he was a colonel for the Confederacy. His wife, Mary, she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer, and she developed, and she came up with the idea for the very first Confederate flag. In other words, Matt's family is the family that designed the Confederate flag. It came up with the idea for them to have a Confederate flag. Once they designed it, she actually got together with her friends, and they sewed it in Hand her house. Hand sewed it in her house. So she's the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. Right? And so, I'm uh, sorry. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the first time he told me about this, he said, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, I just found out that uh, my family is the family that's responsible for the Confederate flag. So there's that. <laughs> that's just literally how he told me. Can you go to the next image just so we can see it? <laughs> that's the actual uh, Confederate White House down in Montgomery, Alabama. And yeah. that's the original Stars yeah, and Bars. That's the original Stars and Bars. So they thought, hey, you know, that's a great flag, great idea. But on the battlefield, we need something, you know, little, looks a little different because that looks too much like the Union flag on the battlefield. So they came up with this flag, which this is the one that we're most familiar with, right? But think about it. Because of the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists all around the country, and even in this family, because of the prayers of that godly remnant, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up. Next slide. Next slide. The flag of surrender goes up in their front yard <laughs> because of prayer. Isn't that powerful. That was like my favorite quote I heard all weekend. <laughs> they were telling me in the car. He said, he said, Matt called when y'all were researching all this and said, So my family created the Confederate flag. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite quote of the weekend yeah but the beautiful thing is i believe there is coming another great surrender there's coming another great surrender we're going to surrender our baggage when it, as it relates to this issue i think god is doing a, a massive job behind the scenes as our story kind of is unveiling that uh god is weaving all, all of us together into amazing tapestry this powerful storyline of healing he's going to use the united church to heal the divided nation amen amen all right, was there anything else in, in y'all's story y'all wanted to talk about? Anything else we want to pull out from the story? Before um, we get into Q&A. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll think of it as we go. If, yeah. if we want to jump in, just for time's sake, jump into yeah. some Q&A. Just making sure. All right, some, some questions that came in. Let's see, where do we start up here? You were... <laughs> this one's a little funny because of the way it ends. You mentioned the surrender of Lee at Appomattox Courthouse and stated that we don't want to end up there. Emotionally, my reaction was that Appomattox and complete surrender is exactly where we needed to be as a people, surrendered. Could you describe why we don't want to end up at Appomattox? Yeah, so I had uh, the, the told funny the part good question. at the end, it says, by the way, this is Ken, and they told me to ask this. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funny part. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that anonymous question, Pastor Ken. <laughs> Man, it feels like a presidential debate where we, you know, like, <laughs> plant our own questions, right? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> You're all paid protesters, right? <laughs> so I made this statement this morning. I shared a dream, and I'll, it's a very short dream. In the dream, we were in a huge building that was, lying, that was filled with courtrooms. And we were being led from one courtroom to the next, and the Lord spoke in the dream and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts, or I will deal with it in mine. And at the end of this long hall, because it's a long hall, at the end of this long hall, there was a huge courtroom, and on the door it said Appomattox Courthouse. So the, I made this statement that we've prayed all of these years into that dream, and we've prayed, God, we don't want to go back to Appomattox. And so uh, what uh, the question is asking is, don't we want to get to Appomattox? Don't we want to get to this flag of surrender? And maybe we'll just leave that up because I think that's a powerful visual because I, Will and I have been declaring that we believe another great surrender is coming to America. The question is, are we going to get there voluntarily or are we going to be driven there? And so 
There was 90 years of activism on the ground by abolitionists crying for the ending of slavery. Like we're talking decades after decades after decades of people declaring that it is wrong to shed the innocent blood of the African. And the nation was experiencing revivals, not just revivals, but two great awakenings that were unprecedented and yet they still failed to end slavery. And so they missed, I, I have to look at it this way, this nation missed its opportunity to voluntarily surrender. So God had to drive us to a surrender and that came in the form of war. And so what Appomattox represents is the bloodiest thing this nation's ever experienced. Seven, the revised numbers, they used to say 620. 650,000, but they've revised that number. Seven, about 720,000 people died, and there's still new data coming out about that because this nation failed to end slavery. And, you know, a lot of people had an opinion. Everybody had an opinion, right, at the beginning of what the war was about. But by the end, everybody knew what it was about. By the end, it was about slavery. And I can take you in the Lincoln Memorial and etched in stone on the North Wall are the words of Abraham Lincoln. When he said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that the scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and if every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be repaid with a drop of blood drawn by the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said again that the judgments of the Lord are righteous and true altogether. That was the words of our president. And you, you need to understand what he said, that he's saying that God is just in sinking the American economy. Ouch, we don't like to hear this, but he is just if he chooses to sink the economy and draw a drop of blood with the sword because we failed to end slavery. And so by the end, everybody knew it was about, it cost Abraham Lincoln his life, okay? But now that the invitation in the dream and the invitation to the church is to deal with it preemptively. We're, we're, we're sitting right now on, in January, it'll be 47 years of legalized abortion in America since 1973. The number is in excess of 65 million that we know of right now. That doesn't include medical abortions, that's just surgical abortions. And so we're in an opportunity right now to deal with this in our courts. And so when I say we don't want to go back to Appomattox, what, my, what that statement means is we want to surrender voluntarily. Uh, surrender to God and his ways and to what is uh, righteous and just so that he doesn't have to take us to an Appomattox. And you say that could never happen today. Oh, really? Oh, really? I think we are naive to think that that couldn't happen again. The, 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 it would be naive in the extreme to think that God would not be just in sinking the American economy and sending a great discipline on this nation if we fail to do what is right, righteous and just. So that's what that statement means. And, and even before, and we haven't talked about this, and so y'all help me. I assume y'all probably know more about it than I do. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there was one point that we were one vote as shy of ending uh, um, 
slavery in America. Or might in 1992. Yes, yes, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. No, 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 I'm talking about abortion. I'm talking about slavery. Oh, and slavery. Uh, it might have okay. even been during the colony period. I'd have to go back and find my notes about it, but there was one point we were one vote shy of ending it even earlier, way before the Civil War. Oh, yeah. You're familiar it, with that? Yeah, George, George uh, I think it was George um, Madison or Mason, one of them, they were so influenced by the preaching of uh, Francis Asbury. He, was, he preached hard against slavery at that time period. So they almost ended slavery right before uh, the, the nation actually got started. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, you're talking about George Mason. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it almost ended there. Okay, by the way, um, let's take that number down, uh, Tony. Um, so I've got more questions here than we are possibly going to be able to ask. Um, so I'm going to get through as many of these as I can. Okay. And uh, uh, so let's not text on anymore. All right, the next question, I'm going to try to go these in order as best as I can. And there's some that are just really good ones. Uh, as the world today talks about white privilege, especially a white person speaking of this, how can we begin to break down the wall in the beginning of a conversation, i.e., without getting defensive, as that hasn't worked thus far? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of talk about privilege, especially white privilege, and does it, I think I think it has some merit to it. I mean, uh, that's that whole understanding that because you are a certain skin color and because the, your particular your particular race is dominant, that there have been some. Privileges afforded to you that you don't even realize. A good example, I remember Arthur talking about how he was in a foreign country. He's white American. He's in this foreign country, and he was in line uh, with all these other people uh, trying to go through a checkout line at some airport. But the people recognized and figured he's probably an American, so they moved him to the front of the line so he could go through. And he thought to himself, man, how many times have I been moved to the front of the line without me knowing about it? So that would explain white privilege. And I, I do this exercise in my classroom where I put trash cans in the front and I, I give pieces of paper out to everybody and I have them roll them up. I said, from wherever you are, you cannot move. Nobody can uh, move out of their seats. You have to stay in your chairs. Yeah. The, these trash cans represent your, your ability to become prosperous in this nation. Take your, your, your ball of trash and throw it into the wastebasket. Of course, the people in the front, they're like, lay up. You know, Easy, easy if it's easy. The people in the back are going like, uh, you know, they're trying to do like Steph Curry, and like, and they're missing, right? I said, okay, everywhere, everyone here, you represent the general population. The seat that you're in right now represents the family you're born into, the house you're born into, related to your proximity to become prosperous in this nation. This is what privilege feels like. So, with the favor that is on your life, those who are at the front, your job is to remember that you had to do your best with the privilege that's afforded to you while at the same time not forgetting the people in the rows behind you. All right? Now, for the Christian, here's my point, though. For the Christian, we all have privilege. I don't care your race, but if you're a believer, we have an amazing privilege. You have greater proximity to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords than anyone on the planet. All right? And so with the privilege that we have as believers, our job is to advance the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ while at the same time, not forgetting the people in the rows behind us, because to whom much is given, much is required. So, and Jesus, I love the way he handled privilege. Jesus, he didn't treat it with some distant, you know, antipathy or distaste. He just didn't need it because he knew who he was. And he never used his privilege to protect himself. Anytime you use privilege to protect yourself, it becomes, it turns into an idol called status. All right. So at the end of the day, favor at the end of the day is not about you. It's about all the other people hanging on the other side of your obedience. 
right? Favor opens doors, but it's influence that changes a nation. And favor is not about status. Favor is about purpose. So when he used the favor that God has given us and put it at risk so that other people can flourish. And so that's, that's what Jesus did with, with the privilege that was afforded him. You see it with, um, uh, on his way to, to Jairus' house, right? This wealthy man uh, who had built a synagogue for the Jews, very wealthy person. He's on his way, but while he's on his way, all of a sudden he's interrupted and somebody grabs his tassel, right? This woman with the issue of blood, y'all familiar with the story. Uh, if you're not, she grabs his tassel and then all of a sudden she's, she's healed. And Jesus says, hold up, somebody touch me. And the disciples are like, hey, everybody's touching you. You're, you're totally surrounded by people. He said, no, 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 someone touched me. So he shuts down, heading to Jairus' house to find out who it was who touched him. Because we have the kind of Lord, we have the kind of Savior that he, he refuses to let power go, go, out, go from him without being connected to somebody relationally. So he announces to everybody that this woman is here. It totally changed her life. She, she had to beg before this. Uh, she had to uh, announce that she was unclean so no one else would be defiled uh, on their way to the temple. And so he announces to everyone that she is now cleansed. She is now healed. Now, for the first time in 12 years, she can receive a hug or embrace from family members. Also, she can now get a job. She didn't have to beg anymore. In other words, Jesus restored her dignity, and he healed her all at the same time. Because he put his privilege at risk so that she could flourish. And that's, that's what we're called to do as believers. That's so good. That's so good. You know, we talked here not long ago talking about how Jesus used his privilege, if you want to use that word, how he used his, his glory to serve, right? So we live in a society that's a human pyramid and everybody's trying to get to the top. Yes. And Jesus was on the top and he actually chose to go to the bottom. That's right. Yeah. He yeah. took his strength and it came under everyone else's weaknesses. Right. Yeah. And even in that story that's so fascinating to me that he gives her credit for her healing. He said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. He, he, he said, no, you participated in this. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he did. He, he, he took his strength, he took his privilege, he put, and he put it underneath her weakness and raised her up. And that's what we're called to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me uh, ask this question just of the audience real fast, because it's something I strongly, strongly believe. Uh, everybody's gifted in some way, right? We all, we all agree with that. You have some type of gifting. You're physically stronger, mentally stronger, emotionally stronger. You are educated in a certain area, whatever. Everybody has some area that they are gifted in. Everybody think about that area real fast. What are you gifted in that area? Yeah. Right, right. So, so maybe some, a good example, somebody's physically strong, right? They're just physically stronger than others. They're gifted in that area, okay? What area are you gifted in? Now, the big question is, why did God gift you in that area? Why? I believe that God gifted you in an area or privileged you in an area, whatever that might look like, for the purpose of helping those who aren't privileged in that area. Yes. If God made you physically strong, it's to help those who are physically weak. That's good. If God made you mentally strong, it's so you can help those who aren't mentally strong. God gifts you in areas so that we can bond together with the body of Christ and help those who aren't gifted in that area. All right, next, next question, and, and I'm going to try to skip through some of these because there's a bunch, and some of them might have the same, uh, same kind of answer here. All right, that's a good question. What can we do individually and as a church to actively make a change in addition to showing love and praying for racial reconciliation? So what practical steps as a church? Well, practical steps, my blueprint for this stuff has been 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
I think it's like verses 25 to 27. It says, uh, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be gentle, patient when wronged, able to instruct. In other words, we need to know our stuff. Able to instruct so that those who are in opposition may repent and come to their senses and escape the snare of Satan who's taken a captive to do his will. I think that's the key. And so <clears throat> the, the key part in that first part is this. Um, we have to remember whose bond servant we are. We're not, we're not the liberal's bond servant. <laughs> we're not the conservative's bond servant. We're not you know, the, the Republican's bond servant or the Democrat's bond servant. Come Listen, on. left wing, right wing, the whole bird is sick. Yeah. yeah. We need the dove back in America, right? It's not about the donkey or the elephant. It's about the lamb. So I don't want to get, no, get my hoop on, but that's the, that's, the, that's the truth. So in this whole discussion, we need to be careful. So we're a little Pentecostal. Can I share a story related to this? So I had an issue arise where um, I had a gentleman say some very ugly stuff to my, to my wife. He was from a, a country and a nation where uh, it's given over to apartheid and other things. He's from South Africa, older gentleman. So I went to, to his house to have a conversation with him. Thankfully, he wasn't there. But later on, his, his son-in-law, I know I ain't always been saved, right? But so his son-in-law comes by and he apologizes and, and he asks for forgiveness on behalf of his uh, father-in-law. I see this man later on and he ever seen the people apologize without apologizing. You know, he just be, oh, how you doing? Oh, can I get that for you? Oh, my God, that's a nice, you know, suit or whatever. You know, he just was overly apologetic. I knew he was trying to apologize. Without, so I, I, we got through it, okay? We got through it. But his daughter, whenever I saw her, she would just... Like I wasn't there. She just looked the other way and just kind of walked on by. So after a while, I just kind of played the game. I'm like, I don't see you either. You know, talk to the hand, right? <laughs> but one day I'm on the playground with my, my two boys and the, the, that grandfather, her, her uh, uh, the, the, the lady's father, he was there with the, his grandchildren, his daughter's kids, and they're playing together, two girls, my two boys, and, but when I walk up on the playground, all of a sudden, the oldest of those daughters, she's like five, seven years, she's six years old at that time period, she looked at me and she looks at her grandfather and says, we have to go right now. And I was like, well, maybe it's hot, maybe she's ready to go. But then she starts to cry. She's like, I'm ready to go. And she starts stomping on the field, I'm ready to go right now. And then um, I'm thinking, what is, what's going on? She runs to the grandfather. And then she turns around and she looks at me, and honestly, this is what happened. Her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She falls on the ground, and she starts slithering around on the playground. And the first thought that came to my mind was this. That's a demon. <laughs> it's the demon of division that's been in this family. And this is the upside down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this... That's a demigorgon. <laughs> yeah. And this is responding to the authority that I've given you in this area. That's my first thought. My second thought, because I'm a cerebral guy, I wonder if she has a problem with epilepsy or something like that. Maybe this is a sunstroke, right? So I turn to the grandfather, and he's praying. He's like, what is going on? He's praying, and I, ask, I try to ask him, um, is she you know, giving over the epileptic fits or whatever? But the first thing that came out of, my, out of my mouth is this, in the name of Jesus, stop and come out. And everything just stops. She goes limp, and the grandfather tries to pick her up. For some reason, he could not pick her up. So I pick her up, um, and I take her back, you know, to, to her house where she stays. And I'm praying the whole time, all right, devil, this ain't Exodus 2 or anything. You're not biting my neck. <laughs> I'm like, huck a shuck a luck a huck a shuck a luck a huck a shuck a luck a 
all the way to our house. <laughs> so we get to the house, and then her mother opens the door. She said, what are you doing with my daughter? I said, hold up. Your father's right behind me. And I walk in. I lay the, young, lay the little girl down. She comes to. Everything's fine. I leave, but I begin to cry as I'm leaving. And I'm God, what is going on? So I get alone, and I hear the Lord say this to me. He said, William, every time that you decided not to overcome evil with good, and you walked past that mother, and you didn't, and you didn't, you didn't uh, respond with kindness, you tried to ignore her, you played the devil's game. And you were empowering the very demon that's bringing division and destroying this family. You don't get the right because of the authority I've given you to respond to this issue the way anybody else does. You're not the Republicans' bond servant. You're not the Democrats' bond servant. You're my bond servant. And literally, listen, that's for all of us. We don't get to respond to this issue the way the, the way the world does. If we do, we empower the very demons that are destroying people's families, lives, and this whole nation. So we can't be quarrelsome. We must be gentle. We must be patient when wrong. We must be able to instruct. In other words, we need to know our stuff on these issues so that those who are in opposition may repent. Come to their senses and escape the snare of Satan who's taking them captive to do his will. All right, let's go home. <laughs> good Lord. Uh, that was good. I, I want to pull a little more out of you. Because mm -hmm. I think it, it, you need to keep going on this. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, because he wants, the question is what can we do practically? Yeah. It doesn't get more practical than that, but can you talk about not taking the bait? Ugh. Yeah. The word offense, the word offense is, is, is a huge word, it's the word scandal on, right? And uh, a lot of people say that's where the word scandal comes from. There's a debate over that, but the truth of the matter is this. When, some, when there's offense, it can't, be, it can't birth a scandal. So what a scandal on was is literally a trap within a trap. So a scandal uh, was this, a scandal on at that time period was this trap that had meat in it. And of course, if a trap is there, a fox gets into it, you know, he can bite his leg off, bite the fur off and get out. So what they would do is actually bit, dig a pit and put the trap and the bait in the pit so that if the fox jumped in, he couldn't bite his leg off and get out. He's too winded. In other words, he's in over his head. That whole contraption is called a scandalon. That's the word for offense in the Bible. So when an offense happens, that's what happens. We get in over our head. We take the bait of offense, we get offended at something, we get angry, whatever, but before long, we're so wounded, we're in all of our heads and we can't get out. So, I'll give an example of what it means to don't take the bait. I'm, growing up, my father told me, when I was six years old, he got me a social security card, and he said, remember your social security card number. Six years old, I'm like, who does that? 10 years, 10 years later, 16 years old, he said, here's your driver's license uh, card, I want you to memorize your driver's license number. I'm like, memorize your driver's license number? I'm like, what is your obsession with numbers? He said, okay, here's the deal. Yeah, I have friends who are police officers, and they'll tell you that there are some police officers who are great people, but there are a few of them who, who uh, you know, hide their insecurities behind a badge. And they'll try to do things to provoke you. 
And he said, uh, so I'm asking you to remember these numbers because sometimes they'll take your, your bill folder from you. This is in the 70s, uh, 70s and 80s. They'll take your bill folder from you, and if you don't know your information, they can take you in. Uh, they can take you down to the police precinct just on suspicion. So I want you to know this stuff. But here's the other thing. Don't take the bait. I was like, what do you mean? He said, sometimes they'll try to provoke you or whatever. He said, listen, your job is to come home safe. Right, so you say, yes, sir, whatever you have to do, you respect the authority, your job is to come home and don't ever take the bait. So, three years later, I'm 19 years old, I'm playing junior college basketball, and myself and a few teammates were Pookie. Yeah, right, that's, that's my nickname back in the day, Pookie, right? <laughs> all right, none of y'all else can say that, that's me, all right. <laughs> but anyway, so, I'm playing junior college basketball, and uh, we go to a, a convenience store, I shared a little bit of the story today, but while we were there, there was this plainclothes cop who followed myself and my teammates and uh, my other teammates. They knew this. I, did, I didn't know it. But anyway, we get ready to do the check, go, go through the checkout. And one of my teammates was so offended. He was so mad that we were being followed. He said, yes, I'm reaching into my pocket right now and I'm taking out my money that my mother sent me and I'm paying for these items. Because this man back here, he is a plainclothes cop. He's been following us the whole time. He follows me every time I come in here, and I'm sick of it. And I'm like, oh, gosh. And my other teammate is looking at me like, I'm like what are we going to do? So he starts engaging this guy, and then finally he says, you know what? I don't understand what you're talking about. He, he didn't want to blow his cover. He follows her out, and he said, you know what? I am a plainclothes cop. And he shows us his badge. He said, yeah, I'm just, I'm just doing my job. But before long... The cop gets angry, and he says, well, you know what? It is always y'all that are stealing in this store. And then my other teammate who's uh, with me, he leans over to me and says, hey, Ford, whatever goes down, you got to be down for whatever. And I'm like, oh, God. So I got these two people, the, the, the cop and this person, they're actually screaming at each other. It's being totally unprofessional. They're cussing at each other. This other knucklehead is telling me, I got to be down for whatever. And then all of a sudden, the police officer stops. He says, he looks at all three of us individually. He says, so what are you going to do about it, boy? What are you going to do about it, boy? And then when he says it to me, I heard my father say, don't take the bait. I said, come on, y'all, let's go. Come on, y'all, let's go. And he just said it over and over again. And we, we, we went home, cried all the way home. We never talked about it again. But here's the deal. That's where the devil has us right now in this nation. Everybody's taking the bait. Everybody's taking the bait, and there's this huge pit that we're falling into. It's this huge trap, and we're getting in and over our head. So don't take the bait of offense on this thing. That's so good. That's so good. As Americans, it's not a question. This goes along with what you're saying. As Americans, we're addicted to outrage, and if, and if people can make money off of our outrage, they're going to do it. And there's been a couple times recently that I've been shocked that Hollywood would make money off of our outrage. So, for instance, uh, there's, there's a movie of, of the black ladies that worked with NASA. About, they were the original computers. What's the name of the movie? Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures. You, you see all the racism stuff in the movie. You're not allowed to use the white restroom. You've got to walk way down here. But it's a docudrama, right? It's about doc, it's about, it should be accurate, right? That was not there at all. Go read the story of the actual lady. There was nothing like that. She said, yeah, there was some white, there was a white restroom, black, but it was nothing like that. And so they actually feed into the outrage to make something bigger. 
Uh, that's the narrative that's being written right now. Yeah. Right, right. And so, so we're, not like, we're not like saying racism wasn't there by any means. Right. But, but we're making, we're throwing. Inflaming it. Inflaming it. Yeah. Uh, another one was, uh, what was, again, I'm bad with these names, but uh, there was a, a sports movie not that long ago. No, not Remember the Titans. Nah, I, don't, there I don't know about that one. But these are just ones I've stumbled across myself. The Butler. <laughs> the, Is that one? Yeah, The Butler. One. Oh, God, if you do the fact check on The Butler, you realize, one, his, his mother was not killed by some racist sharecropper <laughs> when, when he was a little boy because his mother was being raped. That, that never happened to, in his life in the story. They just put all that stuff in there. If it, it, you know, just use, they put it in there to inflame everybody. And that stuff never happened to that, to that gentleman. So, you know, we have to watch that. I tell you, let me tell you something powerful, though. Uh, Sean Smith, he's one of my good friends. Along with Matt, he's one of my best friends. Well, Sean, you heard the story of how his father was, 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 was killed unjustly by this uh, cop in, in, in Oakland, California. Myself, Sean, and my wife, we were in a, a reconciliation service in, in, in Dallas with uh, Cindy Jacobs. We had the kettle pot there. But we had the police officer. Remember, the, there were five police officers that were shot and killed in Dallas. We had the police chief who was over that unit that night. And we did a foot washing that night, and we washed that man's feet. Sean and I washed his feet, and then he in turn washed Sean's feet for what happened to his father. It's a powerful, powerful time. What I'm saying is there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes that people don't realize. God is healing this stuff in ways we can't even imagine. Can you even just mention what happened last week? Uh, with the uh, police officer that was convicted and then what happened with the brother. Oh, I guys... saw the story of Botham Jane. Yeah, you've seen it. It's gone viral, right? And here's the other thing that's, that's really interesting about this. So this, the, of course, Botham Jean, his, he's uh, killed because of the, well, police officer worked 15 hours. Going home, she goes to the wrong apartment. She thinks she has an intruder and she shoots the first person that she sees, not realizing she's not in her apartment. So... She gets tried, she's convicted, uh, she gets 10 years, but, her, the, but the, the brother of, 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 the, of the victim sees her in the courtroom and says, hey, can I, I just have something I have to say to you. He says, I forgive you. This, and then he says, actually, can I hug you? He comes down to hug her, and it's the most powerful embrace you can imagine, right? And then the judge even gave, <laughs> gave the, the police officer a Bible and, and uh, ministered the gospel to her. But listen, there are people who are outraged about the forgiveness that's been released. It is mind-boggling, right? Uh, some people are outraged, of course, about the sentence. I, I get that, but I've seen people get 10 years for, for murder. But here's the deal. I don't think we understand sometimes what spirit we're operating from. There's this story in the, in, in the Gospels where Jesus is coming from the Mount of Transfiguration. And, of course, the disciples are there, and they're like, oh, my God, let's build some tabernacles here. Dude, we have all this authority, all this power. We didn't realize we got the guy for real. I mean, we see some miracles, but there's Moses, there's Elijah. Oh, my God, and there's Jesus, right? So they come down from this encounter, and guess where they have to go through? They have to go through, a t go through an area called Samaria. Samaria, Samaria with the Samaritans. There was this huge rift at that time between Jews and Samaritans. Racial tension. And when they hear that Jesus wanted to come through the area, guess what? They said, you know what, Jesus, you can't come through our hood. So they refused to allow Jesus to come through the area because he was a Jew, because of his race. And so the sons of thunder, James and John, they said, hey, do you want us to, you want us to call down fire upon them and destroy this whole village? Some of that stuff we saw on the mountaintop. Yeah, some of that stuff we saw on the mountain. Can we 
call down fire. And Jesus says, hold up, hold on, hold on. You don't even know what spirit you're speaking from. I didn't come to destroy man, but to save them. And that's why I feel like even with this case, we don't even realize there are people talking about they want justice, but really you want revenge. You don't even know what spirit you're speaking from. So check this out. So Luke 9, that happens, right? Whole thing with the Samaritans. Then he, he releases authority to people to cast out demons. The 70 uh, get, get authority to cast out demons. So it's called to cast out demons, not cast out people. But then he goes on. And look at what Jesus does next. No, that's a big point. Yeah. <laughs> Luke 9. Wait, hold on a second. Yeah. Cast out demons, don't cast out people. Don't cast out people. Right, you can't cast out flesh. <laughs> That's worth tweeting right there. Just yeah. <laughs> Luke 10. Luke 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Hold up. Jesus, you just, you just experienced racism by the Samaritans. But he refused to perpetuate that narrative about those people. He said, Jews, I want you to dream about a new reality regarding the Samaritans, the very people that you hate. Let me tell you about a story that I heard about a good Samaritan, what he did for one of our own. Because he chose, the, he chose a different storyline, and that's what we have to do. Who's going to take the risk to break the stigma of another group that doesn't look like them so that we can all unite? around a shared narrative that's going to bring healing and not hurt. That's what Jesus does with his privilege. That's so good. That's so good. All right, we got a couple more questions. We don't want to go too late. Uh, and there's way more questions. I'm sorry. There's no way we're going to get through all the questions. Let me give you a couple more, and then we do want to spend some time praying and uh, talking about that. And, and, and the first one here would be, uh, so the Confederate, Confederate flag that Matt's family designed. Love you, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the confederate flag so how would you respond to the heritage not hate argument well, for me this personally this always goes back to understanding your history and if I understand the, 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 the terminology that you're using it, and, and my understanding right that it, the question is like no this is, this is about you know the rich confederate history listen that we have to understand. It's getting real. He's putting the iPad. Down. Well, this is just this is serious, and and you know we went through a phase here, a couple years ago where there was a lot of outcry about Confederate flags and statues. That's that's been tamped down a little bit. It's still there, right? But there was a lot of outrage about this stuff, and and almost you saw like a purging that was beginning to take place on certain public properties and campuses. Will and I had the privilege of going to Charlottesville, Virginia, invited by the city fathers and leaders to come and tell our story in, where the Charlottesville riot took place. And we stood in front of the, uh, uh, the statue of Jackson that was all wrapped up in trash bags. But anyway, here's the thing, is that when, when you dig into the history a little bit, this is gonna mess with some people. But what you find is in that same period of time at the turn of the century, certain ideologies begin to take shape and a book gets written called Birth of the Nation. Birth of a Nation. Well, there was a book that was written first and it was called The Klansman. The Klansman, right. And so they, that book was turned into a movie that came out in 1915 called Birth of a Nation and it glamorized the role of the emergence 
of the Ku Klux Klan and how they saved the South. All right, and so that, 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 this, is, this is evil. But that movie comes out, it was the very first movie that ever premiered in the White House in Washington, D.C. The president, you know, a lot of ar arguments that he never even saw it, but the, the man who produced the film was a college friend of his, and so he gave this glowing review that this is history that we need to be uh, taught. And, and it was a movie about the, that glamorized the, the KKK. And uh, uh, there was a, a former Methodist minister down in Atlanta who uh, really jumped on this. And so as that movie came to make its debut in the South, in Atlanta, in advance of that, he went up on top of Stone Mountain. Do you know what Stone Mountain is? There in Atlanta. He went up on top of Stone Mountain. And this marks uh, the reemergence. So the KKK had kind of kind of been eliminated by that period in time, but in 1915, this is their rebirth. This is their reemergence. They burned the first cross in 1915 on top of Stone Mountain, and it was in connection with this, this idolized, glamorized version of the Confederacy. And at the same time, you have the emergence of these legacy groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy. And so part of what they did was they began to educate the public in this value system by putting up statues. In fact, on the side of Stone Mountain, you have uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, Stonewall Jackson, and Robert, e. and Robert E. Lee that are etched into the side of that mountain. And at one point, the original proposition was to have the KKK uh, riding horses in the background. <laughs> That didn't happen. But anyway, so you have these Confederate memorials that emerge. Now, this is where I'm, I'm, I'm saying we have to understand. That are there some Confederate statues that are purely about history and legacy? Probably, and I'll just say, yeah, sure. But we don't know which. And in fact, this one, if, if we went to Charlottesville, Virginia, where Will and I were, if you go down and you look at the plaque, that thing was put up in 1917 by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And so you do have some, if not more than, you know, most. I, would, you know, I think it's safe to say many, if not most, of those things are about more than heritage. There is an agenda behind them, and, and it really takes, I think, spiritual insight uh, to be able to discern what's going on. And uh, so that's not like a complete answer, but I think it gives a little more background. Does that make sense? That, that, that it, you can't just say, no, 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 it's just history. There's nothing there. No, we know that you can't get good fruit from a bad root, right? And so spiritually speaking, if there is a dark agenda that has planted something in our history so that it can produce a fruit in the future, Right? We, we, as believers, we need to be able to, to discern that and recognize that so we can do the right kind of spiritual warfare to, to cut that stuff off. Because think about it, from 1865 all the way to 1915, the Confederate flag was down. Robert E. Lee refused to even wear his Confederate battle uniform to the unconditional surrender signing because he wanted to unite the country. He made them take the Confederate flag down, all, these, all that imagery, he wanted to take it down to unite the country. That stuff didn't reemerge until the movie, The Birth of a Nation. So that proliferated the, and, and brought about the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan 
And with that, all these, um, this iconography from that time period, Hughes brought me to Lee statues, who, by the way, probably would, would have never wanted a statue of himself put up because he wanted to keep the country united. This was just a, a, a people who were trying to perpetuate this whole idea of white supremacy at that time period and who were, were, were putting these statues up at that time. So, so should all of them come down, some of them come down? I don't know, but here's what, I, here's what I'd like to see happen. Let's tell the rest of the story of history. So right beside a statue of Robert E. Lee, put up a statue of some people praying underneath a kettle pot <laughs> that brought the Civil War to a screeching halt. Tell the whole story. Tell the whole story, in other words. You know, put up a uh, statue of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe or, 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 or Harriet Tubman or whatever. You, you get my point. Let's tell the whole story of history. So that's, that, that would be my Maybe my we point. need the Daughters of Intercession. Oh, come on. <laughs> that would take on a storyline. Like that take on a different storyline, right? Anyway. I'll weigh in and answer, in my opinion, real quick. Um, as somebody who grew up in the South around Rebel Flags, Alabama, relatives, Rebel Flags, four-wheel drive trucks, blah, blah, blah. It was like my lifestyle growing up and being around it all my life. I, I think even, say it this way, even if you love the image of the rebel flag or the Confederacy or that, the, the, the rebel, because I think in some regards it's less about a civil war as it is an image of Southern life. And I think that's where the heritage came from. But even if you love that image, do I love my brother more? Why would I ever purposely do something that could offend? The gospel is going to be offensive. Why would I ever purposely do something that could offend? If it's going to offend, I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. I, don't, I, I love you more than I love this heritage or whatever it might be. And I think that's the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last question. Cause we gotta, we gotta get to prayer. Uh, and this is a huge one and uh, we didn't get to get into this. I'm so glad somebody texted it cause I forgot you guys talked a little bit about it today at lunch with me, but uh, so you come to this, this, this realization that Matt's family used to own your family. And at first, you know, y'all were joking about it at lunch at first. Like, Oh, this is so cool. And then it hits you. After a few months, that joker used to own my family. Yeah, right, right. His family beat my Uncle Willie. Yeah, right. And, and vice versa, you know. So, so just talk for a second about how did you guys process that? I mean, I mean, really process that once. Right, so, you know, we're in this prayer and prophetic movements kind of circle thing. So, you know, we get in the, the dreams world, the prophetic world, and it's like, ooh, wow, oh, my God, this is so cool, right? Oh, my God, your people and my people, oh, my God, we're it's connected. It's a lot of sizzle. Yeah, yeah a lot of sizzle. <laughs> like, we're, like, tripping off this at first. Like, oh, my God, your people, oh, my people. We should write a book. Oh, yeah, this is going to be amazing. And then after about seven months, it's like, hold up. <laughs> Your people own my people. <laughs> what about Uncle Willie? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who's beat to death. So all of a sudden, I had a face connected to these painful stories, right? Now I'm, not, now I'm understanding why I had the white bag, black handles dream. And why I had to be free of that baggage before we could connect. So, so that happens. And we, could, we, we did some of this work together, but also privately. Privately, I had to... Let God deal with my heart. And I had to forgive Matt's family. I had to forgive Matt because now I have the face connected to all these stories. And I'm, now I'm trying to forget how my friend was ever my enemy, right, for my family. And so I forgave. I forgave his family fresh and anew from the bottom of my heart, forgave him. And so, but listen, for a year and a half, we didn't find out the story about Daniel Lockett. God let us just sit right there and deal with this whole thing. Everybody talks about reconciliation, but you can't have reconciliation until you first had conciliation. 
What a very conciliatory relationship for nine, ten years. But now we have to reconcile some things, and we have to work through that, right? Yeah, I, I mentioned this this morning in one of the services. I don't remember which, but I think as a white man in America, uh, as, as the, the storyline has developed like it is where we're confronted really almost at every turn by the reality of, of where the nation is and that we ought to be further along than we are, where, that the church, where the church really is, and that we, we ought to be further along than we really are. And I think, and I'll make a blanket statement, and I'll, I'm speaking for myself, but I think a lot of you can relate to this, is that I think as a white man, it's easy to be dismissive when, when uh, a person of color starts to talk about the pain of an entire community. And, and this is how it goes. And I've heard plenty of people like me say this, like, look, I wasn't there, you wasn't there, you weren't a slave, I didn't own slaves, get over it. Can any, is any, I'm guarantee you there's people in this room that have been said those exact words. And, and it's, I think it's more common than we would like to admit. Maybe not that it's said, but it's thought. And, and I can't say that, that I thought that, except I was then confronted with this reality. It's like, wait a minute, this was my family. There was a reality to this storyline that I was unprepared for. And so I had to, you know, we, we, we dealt with stuff together, but then we had to do a lot of digging deep on our own that I had to confront some bias in my own heart because this is no longer those people. This is no longer just in the past. This thing is actually real and it's in my face and the face that's looking at me is this man. And the problem is that I love this man and I know everything about him. And so the pain, I'll just say it like this, the, the pain that is being expressed suddenly, uh, it, it was more real to me than it had ever been in my entire life. It was no longer just a theory. <laughs> Can you hear what I'm saying right now? It was real and I believed it because my friend was telling me this. And so you're not going to believe it if you just hear it on the evening news. The talking heads that are just barking at us like this, they're never going to convince you of the other side of the story. And so for me, I am so thankful that my connection to Will began in a prayer meeting. And I actually think this is a picture of what God is wanting to do right now, that, that our relationship began in a prayer meeting because it didn't begin with an agenda and it didn't begin with somebody's activism and it didn't begin with talking points. It began by the two of us touching the heart of God and connecting there. And I think that the church could really lose her way right now by buying into a, a social activism whirlwind and try to, try to get to some answers and solutions apart from the heart of God that will, will try to, to just put a Band-Aid on a social activist mindset right now and will never actually get to the heart of the matter. And for us, I'm thankful that it began in a prayer meeting. It began with the heart of God. It's going to be sustained by us touching the heart of God. And it will be finished by us being connected to the heart of God. And I think that the church needs to understand that, that, that there's things that are not important to us right now but are important to God. And so was racism important to me before? Honestly, I thought it was. But in retrospect, it wasn't enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, th you think you're there, but we, we're never really there. <laughs> Amen? 
It's all, we're always growing, we're always developing. And, and so it's only when we touch the heart of God that he, he, can, he can help us and, and understand better. We, he'll give us revelation, not just from his word, but re- experiential knowledge. We need experiential knowledge. We get, the church needs to get out of theory land. We need to experience real reconciliation so that we can speak with a testimony and say, this works world this works i have tested i've tasted and i've seen that the lord is good and this works otherwise we just get caught up in the whirlwind trying to stick band-aids on stuff and it never works yeah the church is unfortunately we become more pundits we're trying to become political pundits that just echoing what the culture is saying instead of being prophets they're being voices to the culture that's what we need we need a prophetic voice we need to be leading culture in, in, in healing this whole thing. Yeah, I love it. I think the first time I, I heard your testimony was on Dr. Brown, and, and Matt, you were saying how your, your heritage kind of disappeared because it wasn't a story that was told. Yours was a story that was told because it was a beautiful story of how you came out of bondage. Yours was a story of, of and, and some of us, we don't know our background because maybe the stories weren't told because it was ugly. You don't, you don't tell the ugly stories. You don't want to tell that your, your grandparents were slave owners or whatever. You don't want to tell those stories. Uh, uh, one last little quick thing. Uh, I thought I heard somewhere, and you haven't mentioned it, did y'all have communion on Stone Mountain together? We did. You want to talk about that? That's, I think, one of the high privileges of my life was uh, some of our dear friends down in Atlanta for the last several years, they've been laboring on this issue in prayer. Can you imagine this? They've had hundreds of pastors in the city of Atlanta, multiracial, multidenominational, linking arms and contending together for racial healing. And, uh, and that's a story that, you know, most people don't know about, but that, it kind of hit a high point last year. It was uh, August 25th. We went to Stone Mountain. See, in, that, in the I Have a Dream speech, Dr. King says, let freedom ring, and he names 10 different locations in America, but one of the places he mentions is he says, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain. Why Stone Mountain? because that was the reemergence of the KKK in 1915. So where they burned a cross, our friends said, no, we're going to go back to Stone Mountain and we're going to lift up the cross of Christ. We're not going to burn it. And so we got to go and share our story at Stone Mountain and uh, declare that that there's room at the table of brotherhood. And so with 24,000 people, Will and I got to lead communion and invite people to that table. And the beauty of that is that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slavers sit together in unity and not just at the table, but over communion. Yeah, Yeah. come on. All right, we are going to transition into a time of prayer. Um, And uh, Joshua, if you guys can can move the kettle. Um, we're, We're invited here is not just people who have amazing testimonies. These are people that are used mightily around the world in the spirit of intercession and the spirit of prayer and repentance. Um, the guilty thing we do in the church, and, and I'm very guilty of this, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so practical, natural-oriented that praying sometimes feels like because you can't always see the fruit of it immediately seems like it's a waste of time. I would never use that terminology, but let's be real. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, I want to make no mistake. What we're about to do is powerful. It is awesome. We need to spend some time repenting 
the church of Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years has done some amazing things and it has revolutionized the world and it has fun, done far more amazing things than it has done destructive things. But at the same time, in the name of Christianity, we've seen some truly ugly things be done. Some of which we've already been talking about. The slave Bible and, and, and those sorts of things. And so um, we want to spend some time just in prayer and intercession. I want Matt and Will to be able to lead us. And uh, they have this beautiful symbol that's here. And uh, uh, we want to give you the opportunity, if you would like to just come pray around it, you know, a couple of you at a time, five, ten of you at a time, I don't know, and pray around the pot. It's, it's, there's nothing sacred about the pot. It's not like your prayers are more powerful around the pot. But it is symbolic of something powerful. And, and this pot has been used with symbolism. Several feet have been washed. Share real quick just some of the things. Yeah, we had a powerful uh, service where we uh, had uh, Dr. King's uh, daughter and niece. We actually washed the feet of the King family at the Lincoln Memorial use, using this pot. And so uh, a lot of healing. And then also, too, I went to, I went to South Korea and, uh, to speak. Usually they give you like a, a day or two to kind of let your sleep clock kind of catch up with you. They said, you bring cattle? I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, I did. You speak now. And they, they rushed me to the stage. It's like 4,000 South Koreans, all these intercessors. You speak tonight. I was like, you have other speakers. I mean, can't you have somebody else? Like, no, no, no. You don't understand. Today is June 26th. This, today is the, is the 70th anniversary of our civil war in our country between North and South Korea. God used prayers underneath your kettle to end a civil war, we need you to give us hope that our civil war can end too. And so we've got the chance to wash the feet of a North Korean general who had defected. He used to work for, for Kim Jong-un. We washed his feet in the kettle pot. South Koreans washed his pot, feet in that pot. It's a memorial stone. You read the story, Joshua chapter four, of those 12 memorial stones. You know where you see the story, those memorial stones again? 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. The nation had gone astray, but he called the nation back to remembrance and called God back to remembrance. How did he do that? He, when he rebuilt the altar, he used 12 memorial stones. He was basically saying, God, on these old stones, on these old memories, release a new fire for the next generation. Right? And so when God saw those stones, he didn't see a pile of rocks. He's a God who loves to remember. You know what he saw? He saw the great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. What memories do you have that you want to bring to the altar that you want God to release fire today on those old stones so you can see a new fire go to the next generation? What things need to be burnt up? What things need to be consumed? Here's what I'm asking. Come on, let's come forward. Let's pray. Let's come around this kettle if you, if you don't mind. And, and let's, let's, let's get into a time of prayer. It won't take real long, but. Don't be shy. Feel free to gather yeah. it. You can put yeah. hands on it. Whatever this, you feel like yeah. you need to do. I mean, the cross is the connecting point for all the ages. Jesus yes. is the only mediator. But he's left us this memorial stone as a touch point. God, we dare to believe that the same God who ended slavery. You're the same God who can part whatever circumstance for us today. So God, we come before you right now. First, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the sins of our forefathers. 
Lord, for sin patterns and, and iniquities that have been perpetuated for generation after generation. We ask forgiveness, Lord, for hatred, bigotry. Lord, the storylines that we just allowed to just enrage our heart that brought bitterness. Lord, we're black, white, Latino, whatever, God, whatever those stories are, God. We ask for the, we ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for perpetuating those bad narratives, for perpetuating false narratives over people, false stigmas. God, we choose to break the box of the categories that we place people in. Lord, from even one generation to the next. Lord, from the baby boomers to the, to the millennials, to the generation after they got, we break the stigma that we placed over people even generationally. God, forgive me. Forgive us. But Lord, we dare to believe that there is another storyline going on. That there are generational blessings that you want to re that you want to enact, that you want to release. And God, we pray, we pray for Brandon. God, we pray for Florida. God, would you release a revival in this area, Lord, that begins to tear down every dividing wall in the name of Jesus, Lord? We ask. For this generation, spiritual awakening to come about, God, we can't muster it up. We can't crank it out. But, God, we know the same God, Lord, and Elijah passed away and Elisha said, where is the God of Elijah? God, we say today, where is the God of William Seymour? Pour it out today, God. In the name of Jesus. Don't, don't look at me right now, but I want to speak to my African-American brothers and sisters. And I want to repent to you. And I want to ask for your forgiveness on behalf of everyone who's ever said to you, get over it. I'm sorry. And for the thoughts of all the bias and prejudice that haunt your days. I'm sorry. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. I want to do what I believe my ancestor Daniel Lockett would do. And say I'm sorry and I want to ask for your forgiveness for the release of forgiveness now so that we can go forward together. That tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. So please, please, please forgive me. Father, right now, I just pray that there would be a release of even a generational curse, Lord, that has, uh, where, where there has been baggage handed down from one generation to the next. God, we pray for a release and we say this far and no further in the name of Jesus. God, we lay it all on the altar right now. Black, white, brown, yellow, red, all of it, God. We lay it all on the altar right now and we invite the fire. Come consuming fire. Oh, we love you, Jesus. 
We love you that you break the bad storylines. You refuse yeah. to take the bait and you refuse to perpetuate the, the storylines that bring pain. God, we ask for the release of that Good Samaritan storyline in our own lives. Yes. God, in our own churches, release the healing storyline that breaks the old storylines, the storyline that breaks the curse. God, I pray specifically for Arise Church yes. in this community. God, I pray, God, what is happening right now, what you are starting right now in this God, this uh, eclectic group, God, this yeah. beautiful people say, group yeah. right now that represents so many different experiences, so many backgrounds, so many giftings. God, I pray that you would set something off, that you would light a fuse in this place. God, that you would ignite something that cannot be extinguished. God, we don't look at this moment right now. Listen, moments matter. Moments matter. The Lord told me that a couple of years ago. Moments matter. God, I pray, God, that in this moment right now, that this wouldn't just come and go. But God, that, that something would be initiated in the, that is supernatural in nature, that transforms the human heart, God. And now, God, even as we go out tonight, God, we pray, God, that this city would be transformed, that this entire region, this mid-region of Florida would be transformed. God, I pray that you would make arise church like a prototype in the nation right now for what you are wanting to do in the story that you are writing God writing God I pray that what happens in this place would actually impact the entire nation in the name of Jesus yes Lord sir now that I know that this comes up this starts being stirred up there there's some of you here you've done your research you know that your family owns slaves or you know the stories of KKK family members, or maybe some of y'all were even members of that before you came to the Lord. I just want to say to you, as a son of former slaves, I forgive your family. I release forgiveness to you in the name of Jesus, and I break the power of the withered hand curse. The Bible says, curse is the man who trusts in the arm of the flesh. That's the curse that came with slavery. I break that curse off you. I break that curse off your family. The curse of poverty from trusting in the arm of the flesh. I break it off your family right now in the name of Jesus. And I release you. And I speak freedom to you. I speak forgiveness to you. I speak the forgiveness over your family. I speak blessing over your family. I say, Lord, thank you for the spiritual inheritance in Christ Jesus and the redemptive meaning and purpose with you birthed them into this family, into this region, into that, into this nation. God, I pray it be realized and it will come about in Jesus' name. And I bless you. I bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I'm reminded as I see these X-Men shirts that so oftentimes throughout history when somebody was illiterate and they had to make their mark, they would make an X. That was their mark. They didn't know how to write their name. They would make an X. And at the same time, I'm reminded that X is the short Greek symbol for Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would be people that our names don't matter. You matter. That our life would be surrounded by you. 
One of the signs of true revival is that the, the, the color lines are always blurred. When Azusa Street happened, you had a one-eyed black preacher preaching to Chinese men and, and, and white men and, and, and yellow and every color skin and Native Americans and, and people coming from every land, Indians, and keep people coming from all over the world coming together because it didn't matter the color of skin because the, the, the cross of Jesus Christ was the unifying factor. And so, God, I pray that we are a church that becomes a model for the world to see, that there is unity out of diversity. There is unity around Christ. And we will not be known as a black church or a white church or a Latino church. We will be known as a Christ church where Christ is lifted up. And all men, no matter what color of their skin, come and find hope and healing and love in this place, Lord. And we repent as a church forever any forever allowing in our presence racism to exist. For every moment that we've had an opportunity to step in and say, no, no, we ain't going to talk like that. For every moment we've had an opportunity to step in and say, hey, we don't tell jokes like that. And we didn't step in because of fear or, or whatever it was. We didn't step in. God, we repent. And God, we might not be able to change the world, but we can change our world. Yeah. And God, I pray that as we are in conversations and things arise, that we know are wrong, that we would be people who are fearless and courageous, and we would step up, even if it costs us our jobs, even if it costs us some friendships. God, we would speak the truth in love, so we would have a loving attitude at the same time that we say, no, we are not going to be that kind of people. And the God, that we would stop the elements of racism that we can stop within our own, within our own ears and mouths in the distance around us. And God, we pray that you move the heavenlies as we've been praying. We know that there's a natural element to it, but there is an upside down. There is an element that's so deep and so spiritual. And so God, I pray in the human heart that you give heart transplants. And hearts that, uh, just as we are around this altar, around this kettle, God, I pray that around altars in this church and around spiritual kettles in this church, that you are going to give heart transplants and hearts that are full of hate. Could be racism, it could be hate towards the, 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 the homosexual community, could be hate toward all kinds, but hearts that are filled with hate. I see in my spirit black hearts turning red. Because at this altar and at our altars, and I pray it's beyond our church, it's churches all over this, this world, that at the altar of Jesus Christ, hearts are going to be healed and transplanted in Jesus' name. Let it be. Let it be. Just like that document we talked about this morning that the Methodist circuit writers would pass out and say, it is for freedom that you've been set free. God, I pray that we as people of freedom would walk out of this room and cause freedom to happen to those we come in contact with. Let us carry the document of the blood of Jesus Christ everywhere we go that sets people free. Sets people free. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, church, if you're in agreement, can we just all say it together? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.